sacred text. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in your Son, Jesus Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We ask now that you would enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit and grant us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth. Through that same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, good morning. If you don't know me, I'm Mike, one of the pastors here, and I'll be speaking from this passage Steve just read. In the last couple of months at King's Church, we've been looking at the stories of the life of Abraham found in the book of Genesis. And here, the one we come to today is in many ways the spiritual climax of Abraham's life. It's also quite a disturbing story, isn't it? It's unsettling. Some critics have seen here evidence that the God of the Bible is actually a moral monster. Does God really command a human sacrifice? So I want to deal with that quickly before we get into the main uh, material. Child sacrifice was part of some of the religions in the ancient world, including some of the Canaanite peoples, some of Abraham's neighbors, and the Bible views such practices as morally repugnant. The Bible, the scriptures, were unique in the ancient world in their teaching about human value and dignity. They ascribed a unique preciousness to human life, man, woman, and child, every human being, from the womb onwards, all were made and created in the image and likeness of God. That was unique in the ancient world. And so with that fundamental view of humans, there's no place at all for human sacrifice or child sacrifice. And it's one of the reasons why God actually was angry at the Canaanites. So what is going on here in Genesis 22? This is the only time that God demands something like this in the Bible. We know that it goes against the, God's revealed will and law. We note also that God has a substitute ready, a ram, who will take Isaac's place. So Isaac's not in any danger. Just wanted to put that out there. But to be honest, it is still unsettling, isn't it? Why would God command something like this? Is he just messing with Abraham's head? The story is meant to stop us in our tracks. It's meant to, to give us a problem. It's intended to challenge us. That's deliberate. And so we need to stop and pause and ponder and ask the right questions of this text if we are to find its treasure. Because if we are too quick to judge the Bible by the standards of our own time, we will miss the wisdom and the wonder that it has to teach us. We need to pause and look into the depths here. This is a story about trust. It's about faith. It asks the question, can God be trusted no matter what? That's a question we all need to ask too. One of the fundamental questions of our lives is this, can God be trusted no matter what. And most of us really don't understand faith. Uh, whether we're Christians here or not, you may be a person who's exploring the Christian faith. We're so glad you're with us. Most of us don't really understand faith. We tend to think of it <clears throat> as one of two false alternatives. Some think of faith as a kind of emotional commitment 
you know, you, you just have an experience. It's like a blind leap into the dark. Uh, don't, don't worry about the facts. You know, just believe. Don't ask too many questions. You know, it's faith. It can't stand up to scrutiny. And that v- version of faith is, is, is emotionalism. And that's not the Bible's view of faith. The Bible's view of faith is actually reasoned. Come, says God in Isaiah. Let us reason together. The Bible encourages us to ask questions, to seek the truth. So emotionalism won't cut it. But then we often swing to the other false alternative, which is just intellectualism. So faith is a matter of having the right data, the right set of beliefs. You, you are sent to some data that you've learned about the past, and then you just passively accept it, and that's faith. And people, actually, in the Christian version of this is, I prayed a prayer when I was 15 at the youth camp and I gave my life to Jesus and nothing's changed since then. But I'm still a Christian because I prayed that prayer. That's passive. That's not biblical faith either. It's not a blind leap into emotion or a passive ascent to data. Biblical faith, just looking at John and Ben, is there a problem with the sound at all? No, we're okay. In biblical terms, faith is, real faith is neither of those two options. Real faith we're going to learn from the story of Abraham. This is written to teach us what faith is like. He's the father of faith. And this passage is known as the Akeda, means binding in Hebrew language, the binding of Isaac. And it's the spiritual climax of Abraham's story. Perhaps the most haunting and powerful story in the whole Old Testament. What do we learn about faith here? One, God tests it. Two, faith is obedient. Three, because faith is in a relationship. Four, with a God who provides. I'm going to say that again. It's actually all one sentence. God tests faith. Faith is obedient because it's in a relationship with a God who provides. Firstly, God tests faith. Faith. Now, just imagine Abraham's experience. Those of you who've been here for a couple of months will know the journey that we've been on, the journey that Abraham's been on. It started when he was 75 years old. He was uh, there minding his own business at home. And God showed up and called him and sent him away from all that he knew, all the comforts of the, the city of Ur, and sent him out west to a land that he was promised but he didn't know at that time. And he left his own father and being her- in, implied in that is his inheritance, his, his, his name. He left it and became a stranger, a traveler, a nomad, a, a no-fixed abode. And he lived in tents for many years on the strength of God's promise. And so we've been on the journey now for 25 years, almost a generation. And we've seen him go on the ups and downs of the journey of faith. We've seen him obey and go and get to the land. And then, oh no, the land's full of people already. These Canaanites who are dug in. And then there's a famine in the land. And then he goes down to Egypt to escape the famine. And then the Egyptians behave badly. And he has to try and get out of that. And then he goes back. And so there's an up and down. And 25 years have gone by. And there was a point where he'd all but given up. He had wobbled. He went with plan B, which was a surrogate Uh, pregnancy by Hagar, his wife's maidservant, and that pregnancy was successful and the child was born, Ishmael, but God had shown up and said, no, Ishmael isn't the promised child that I've said I will give you. 
That might have been an acceptable practice in their culture, but it wasn't what God had promised. And God repeated his promise and underlined it and highlighted it to Abraham. From A child will be born to you by Sarah, your wife. And then God came back. And a couple of weeks ago, we thought about how God came very personally to engage with Sarah, to speak to her, to reassure her, and communicate to her that, yes, this baby is coming. And so at the age of 90, with a 100-year-old husband, Sarah gave birth to the miracle baby, whose name is Isaac. That means he laughs, because everyone was laughing about that. So, good news. But then again, things turned, had a downturn. In chapter 21, Ishmael, who's now a teenager, mocks little Isaac, and he's sent away. And so Isaac genuinely is the only one left. And here in chapter 22, verse 1, open your Bible, please, if you've closed it, page 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. A harrowing demand. Awful words. It must have rocked Abraham's world. We can only imagine how he felt. Why on earth does God do this? The answer is given us in verse 1. God tested Abraham. This word test can also mean prove. He proved him. Derek Kidner, a great Bible commentator, says this. Abraham's trust in God was to be weighed in the balance against common sense, human affection, and lifelong ambition. In fact, against everything earthly. On the one side, you've got everything earthly. It doesn't make sense to sacrifice Isaac. I love Isaac. And my entire life has been waiting for this child. That's one side. And on the other side, you've got naked trust in God. His trust is going to be weighed. And this test will reveal his deepest emotional attachment. Will Abraham love God with all his heart, mind, and strength? This is the point that atheism will always find hard to grasp. That God is the real center, not you and me. Because love of God is actually the point of our existence. It's what we were made for. And without it, we perish and die. You see, we will all love something with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We will love something. That's how you're made. And if you love God like that, then that is good for you and you will flourish as a human being. Because loving God is what we were made for. But if you love anything else that much, it is what the Bible calls idolatry. And idols are fundamentally bad for us. They remove our flourishing. This is what happens with idolatry. It makes you a big promise. You do anything for the idol, and then your idol kills you. And it will do that whether it's a human being or a career or a family, or money, or security, or comfort, or control, or power, or any of the other idols that we cling to. So let me ask if the first thing we learn is that God tests faith. Friends, are you in a situation right now in your life where your faith is being tested? 
you feel you're being stretched to the limits. Does God seem strange? Lord, why are you letting this happen to me? You can't make sense of it. It doesn't stack up against common sense, human affection, and life's ambitions. Friends, just think about this for a bit. God may be testing your faith right now, proving it, refining it. Don't just complain. Don't just break down. Don't just turn inwards or give up. Ask him in prayer, in the silence, Lord, what do you want to teach me through this test? He's not allowed it to happen by accident. God tests faith, first point. Second point, even though God tests faith, faith is obedient. Faith is obedient. Look at verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. I mean, those words, uh, early the next morning, uh, if you think about it, it's very poignant, isn't it? That is one journey he did not want to set out early. But getting up early, in spite of the emotion, and probably you haven't slept, getting up early shows that you're going to obey. You're going to get on with it, not knowing what's going to happen. Faith is obedient. Now, in uh, October 1517, 105 years ago, a German monk and a scholar called Martin Luther published a document which is known as the 95 Theses. It was a moment that sparked, or was one of the sparks, for a revolutionary movement that swept through Europe and the world, and that that movement was known as the Reformation. One of the big insights of the Reformation of those Protestant reformers, who we cherish, was that a person is saved by grace alone through faith alone. They called it sola fide, faith alone. So by trusting in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, just by trusting it, sinful people, no matter what they've done, are fully forgiven and welcomed by God, pardoned. Their good deeds have nothing to do with it. That was the big breakthrough. Luther was a monk. He'd spent all his life trying to be good. All of a sudden, he realizes, good deeds, my good deeds have nothing to do with it. Luther realized that God declares a sinful person righteous by faith alone, through God's grace to them. It's a massive breakthrough. Think about that. He realized this truth was so important that he later said it was the article by which the church stands or falls. That was a right emphasis, a true emphasis. It's a gospel on which our church, King's Church, is built. The Protestant understanding of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Amen? Got a few Protestants in here. Right emphasis, but it is easily cheapened. Because while the Bible teaches that faith alone saves a person, it also shows that faith is never alone. Got to be really careful how we say this. Faith alone saves a person through grace, but faith is never alone in the Bible. Faith, says the Apostle James, faith without works, without some uh, deeds or actions, is actually dead. So if you have true faith, it will always produce Goodness, 
in your character and in your actions. Just like a tree will always produce fruit, we would say that tree is a great-looking tree, but it's actually dead because it's never produced fruit. Faith always produces fruit. And when we forget that faith is never alone, we make faith into a kind of badge. You know, we just stick something on with a name on it. It says, Christian. See, I'm a Christian. I got my sticker. Some of us have this, think of faith as a kind of label. We just, we just pinned it on. But there's no real change in our heart. The heart keeps on trusting in the same old things and acting in the, the same old ways that it always has done. That's not biblical faith. See, faith in the Bible is obedient. Now, how might we do this here at King's Church? One way we can do this is by being a different person on Sunday to how we are the rest of the week. So you know how to look and act on Sunday morning, right? You know, you know how to, to behave during singing and uh, kind of think language you should use and the sorts of um, attitudes and comments and reading the Bible and so on. But Monday to Friday, you're basically a different person because you're a chameleon who fits in with the world around. That is not biblical faith. This is pretense. Another way that we could do this is to, is to look at our sin and just kind of accept it. Oh dear, sinned again. Well, you know, Jesus knows I'm rubbish. And on we go. Or we say, I'm struggling with such and such a thing. But we're not really struggling. We're just giving up. Because we have pet sins that we just indulge and play with. And those sins actually control us and they eventually will destroy us. So we mustn't have cheap faith that results in nothing changing in our lives. That is worthless. In fact, it's worse than having no faith at all because it's deceiving you. It's not the real thing. We see here in Abraham the great model of faith that his faith was obedient. It was active. Look at verse 2 again. God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Now, the language underneath this command to go is exactly the same words that he'd heard back in chapter 12, verse 1, where God said to Abraham, get up and go. Leave your father's house and your father's country and go to the land I will show you. It's exactly the same language underneath. Exactly the same. He's heard these words before. Get up and go, and he's been obedient. And now he hears them again with a difference. He'd left Ur in the past and given up his, given up his past for the sake of God's promise. Now he's being asked if he will trust God by giving up his son as well, apparently surrendering his future. You see what this is was being asked of him? Everything that Abraham has ever hoped for is tied up in this one son of promise. Genesis 12, go forth to the land I will show you. Genesis 22, go forth to the region of Moriah on the mountain I will show you. So there's a real parallel. But whereas in Haran, a son Abraham took leave of his father forever. At this moment, father and son are preparing to see each other for the last time. This is costly obedience. Great Jewish scholar Nahum Sana wrote this. The great difference between the two events is what constitutes the measure of Abraham's progress in his relationship to God. The first divine command carried with it the promise of reward. I will make you into a great nation, 
give you a great name, you know, bless you, protect you. The final one holds out no such expectation. On the contrary, by its very nature, it could mean nothing else than the complete nullification, the ending of the covenant, and the frustration forever of all his hopes. Ishmael has already gone. Now Isaac would be gone too. Tradition has rightly seen in Abraham the example of steadfast loyalty to God. That's faith. So he gets up early. And what happens here in this story in chapter 22 is it just slows down. The pace slows right down. Early he gets up. He loads the donkey. He takes two servants. He takes Isaac. He cuts wood. Oh, what is he thinking about when he's cutting the wood? It's going to be, his son's going to be burned on this wood. He cuts wood for the burnt offering. He sets out for the place. He travels for three days. Three agonizing days. Look at that, verse 4. On the third day, he looks up and sees the place in the distance. Still traveling. What is he thinking? Lord, what do you want me to do? He says to the servants, look at verse 5. Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. But look at what he says next. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Now that's a voice of faith. He has no earthly reason to think that they will come back together. But he's reasoned it out. God is going to come through somehow. And I don't know how. Amazing. Biblical faith is trust in action. Quality of our faith is revealed how it shapes our character and our deeds. A restaurant owner in Texas became a Christian quite suddenly. He had been living with his girlfriend for many years. He married her a week later. Became a Christian on Sunday, married on the Saturday. And here's the interesting part of that story. No one actually mentioned it to him. No one mentioned it to him. He just knew, and so he obeyed. He had true faith. Pastor Tim Keller and his wife Kathy planted a church in Manhattan in 1989, famous church called Redeemer Presbyterian. They saw an amazing outpouring of God's Spirit. Dozens of people from a completely secular background, dozens, probably hundreds, became Christians and came into this church and began to believe the gospel. And after about three years, the pastor sat down and started doing membership interviews, as we do, membership interviews. And he discovered that m the vast majority of these young adults had been living a very promiscuous lifestyle, sexually promiscuous lifestyle, uh, right up until the point they become Christians. And the majority of the men had been in same-sex lifestyles, homosexual lifestyles. And what he discovered was all of them had stopped and turned their life around sexually, and the church had never taught on it. Faith, when it came, was obedient. It created obedience, as inevitably as a tree creates leaves. Obedience is taking the truth of God's word and applying it to every little bit of your life, not just the areas that you want. Obedience takes us outside of our comfort zone, and you experience a little bit of death and a little bit of fear when you're obeying. Look at Abraham. Obedience deals with the things you want to hide. It deals with the things you want to keep buried. Secrets. Secret habits. 
Obedience will confess those things to other people. Obedience tells you to love people that you don't even like. Obedience does the things that we don't want to do by nature. The comedian W.C. Fields was a staunch atheist. He was also very interested in theology and owned several Bibles. On one occasion, a friend, Gene Fowler, saw a Bible on Fields' shelf. And he said to him, what the hell are you doing with that? And W.C. Fields replied, I've been looking for loopholes. What are you, where are you looking for loopholes, friend? Where are you called to be obedient and you know you're disobeying God? God tests faith, but faith is obedient. That's the second point. Now, thirdly, how, how is it that faith can be tested like this to the limit and still be obedient when, it's, when it hurts? The answer, excuse me, the answer is because faith is in a relationship. Faith is in a relationship with, with a person, God, the living God, who you come to love and know. Faith is not just accepting some teachings. God's command to Abram doesn't come out of the blue here. Think of his lifelong journey, his journey of 25 years. This is not blind faith. He has seen God providing for him again and again and again. The rescue from Egypt. They came out with riches. The generous offer that Abraham made to Lot, which looked like Abraham had lost out by being kind, whereas in fact he was spared from calamity. The forgiveness that God gave him about plan B with Ishmael. Even though Abraham had wobbled, God provided for Ishmael. And then the miracle baby Isaac and how God turned that laughter of despair and bitterness into laughter of sheer joy as this old couple had this miracle baby. Abraham was a man who got things wrong. He's just like you and me. He tried to control his life. He got anxious. There were good times. There were bad times. There were long periods where God was silent, just like you. There were long periods where it looked like nothing was happening and God, he felt, must have felt God had abandoned him. Yet time after time, Abraham has seen God's character in action, all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful, a faithful God who keeps his promises in his own timing. The Lord's character is even revealed in these verses. He's testing Abraham. It's only a test. He's not actually going to kill the boy. Now, of course, we readers have the advantage of knowing that, unlike Abraham. Even the command is gentle. In the original language, God says, please take your son. Very rare. It's not a command, it's a request. Please, please take him. The Lord appreciates the costliness of what he's asking this man. And he implies his promises. He's your only son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. God might sound like he's rubbing it in there, but he's actually reminding Abraham of some realities. God is faithful. The name Isaac is the name he laughs. His birth was only possible by a miracle. Your only son, he's the son of promise. There's a hint here that God is saying, I took care of that, didn't I? Now trust me on this. I wonder if there's a word here for senior people in our congregation. You've been through the, the storms of life and 
You've come through. You're still walking with Jesus. And you're in a time of life where you're weaker. You don't have the strength and the, the energy you used to have. Perhaps it would be tempting to, to think that God now will give you an easy ride. You know, you'll just surf into the kingdom. But it doesn't seem to have been that way with Abraham, does it? It may be that the most severe test is still ahead. He's not doing this in a cruel way. He's doing it out of love to refine you, to prove you. What is God asking you to trust him on now, senior person? See, Abraham already knew God's faithful and tender character, so he had enough to go on, didn't he? He had enough to go on. He believed that God would somehow keep the promise, however it would be worked out. And so he says in verse 5, I and the boy will go over there and we will worship and then we will come back to you. And Hebrews chapter 11, which Steve uh, read for us earlier on. Don't turn to this, I'll just look it up for us. Hebrews chapter 11 says this, um, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive him back from death. So he came even to have resurrection faith. Where are we now? God tests faith. Faith is obedient because it's in a relationship, finally, with a God who always provides, with a God who always provides. This is the great turning point of the story, verse 11, I'll read it. The angel of the Lord, he's just reaching out his hand, takes the knife to slay his son, and the angel of the Lord calls out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so he called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Out of the blue, just caught in a hedge, just like, fancy that, so what a strange providence. God provides a substitute for Isaac. God stops him, stays his hand, and the ram is provided. So how will we respond when God seems strange and silent? What is the quality of our faith, friends? What do we know about this God? What is he like? What have we seen and experienced? How do we know his character? Now we know this character of this God in many different ways, but there is one place above all others where we see the heart of our God. There was another time in that same location, Mount Moriah, where another son was taken by his father many years later. This, father, this son was also an only son, the son the father loved. This son also was told to carry the wood on his back. He was taken to be sacrificed, to be killed. Only this time there was no angelic intervention. No voice shouted out, 
do not lay your hand on him, when Jesus Christ was led to the cross on, of Calvary. Instead, voices shouted, crucify him, and mocked his suffering. There was no substitute ram that day, because no other was good enough to take your place and mine. Everyone else was corrupted and defiled by sin. There was only one found innocent in the whole human race. So Jesus himself was the substitute. He was the lamb. And he strongly and resolutely laid down his life for his friends. And it was the will of the Father on that occasion to crush him. Why? God called Abraham to choose between his love for his son and devotion to God. And Abraham chose God and his son was spared. But when God faced the choice between the son he loved and devotion to you, he chose you. And the son willingly became a sacrifice. In this story in Genesis, the son carries the wood and the father takes the fire and the knife. That shows you some kind of partnership, doesn't it? Isaiah 53 refers to a greater partnership where the son was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. It's quiet. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers was silent, so he did not open his mouth. Yet it was the father's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He bore the sin of many, and he made trans intercession for the transgressors. What does this text mean to change in our lives, friends? It's calling us to deeper trust. Whatever you're going through right now, it is not what Abraham went through in Genesis 22. God is calling out to you, trust me. Trust me. What are you struggling with in your life right now? What is the Lord saying to you? Trust me. How do I know I can, Lord? Because of the cross. Because he who gave up his only son for you will keep you until the river rolls its waters over your head. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us these stories of real human beings just like us, not perfect saints, but uh, struggling sinners who have real faith and learn to walk with you and trust you day by day, even in the midst of anxiety and agony. Grant us that faith, we pray, to trust you and strengthen our faith right now through this table, we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table, so I wonder if the elders who are serving will come forward, please. And I think the musicians are going to come up as well, and uh, we'll be having some music during it. Now, where's that uh, handheld microphone? There it is, Bob. Where's Bob? 
If you can use that, that microphone, thank you. I'll come down. <coughs> I'm always terrified that this is going to sweep the whole lot onto the floor. <laughs> Thankfully, we didn't do it. We've saved again. Well, this Lord's Supper is a special meal that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to his followers to remember him by. We take a piece of bread, which is gluten-free, I hasten to add, and that bread symbolizes his body broken for us on the cross. And we take a drink of wine, which I want to reassure you is alcohol-free, and that represents his blood shed for our sins. And nothing happens to these elements in this room, but that does not diminish the significance for one moment of what we're doing together. By this meal, we remember Jesus' work on the cross on our behalf. He paid the costly price, didn't he? He took the penalty that was due to our sins. He bore the punishment that we deserved. At the cross, our sins were forgiven because they were placed on him. Our guilt is atoned for because he, the innocent one, became guilty. Our shame is removed forever because he became the outcast. He was torn apart so that you could be put back together. So this supper is tremendously significant. By it, our faith is nourished. As we feed on Christ in our hearts, we remember all that he's done for us, and we renew our vows to follow him. Now, at King's Church, we practice an open table. That means the supper is not restricted to church members only, but we welcome all Christians who are trusting in Jesus alone for their salvation to take part. You're welcome, most welcome to be with us. Uh, but the table is fenced. There are boundaries. And Christians must respect the body of Christ when they come. So if you are sinning against someone in the fellowship and need to put that relationship right, then please don't take part this time. Go and repent, restore the relationship, and then come ready to take the supper next time. And those who are not yet followers of the Lord Jesus should let the elements pass them by. We're glad you're with us, but this table is not yet for you. But it is a great opportunity for self-examination. Why aren't you right with God yet? Will you turn to him even today? Will you trust him in the way that we've been talking about this morning? Will you say, Lord, I want to walk with you through life with Jesus as my Savior? So as the elements are being passed around, don't take the bread, but take Christ into your heart in faith. And then come straight after the service and talk to me or one of the other leaders here. And we'd love to talk more with you and get you ready to receive the supper next time as a child of God. Let me read these words of institution from 1 Corinthians. The apostle writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. His broken body. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim his death until he comes. Bob, would you lead us in prayer? Let's pray. Father, as we think this morning of that story of Abraham and Isaac and what God asked of Abraham, we can sense the pain of a father taking his son to the place of sacrifice. But we can also sense the pain of God, who in observing the grief of Abraham himself knew the grief that would come, because one day his son would carry that wood on his back to Golgotha. One day his son would ask, is there any other way? One day, Father, heaven would be silent. There would be no angel of the Lord saying, stop. But God himself would feel the pain of Christ giving himself for us. Father, we thank you this morning that this bread reminds us of a body broken for us, of a life given up to death, to, to stop the death of us, your children who you have set your love upon. And this blood reminds us of a life spent and the pictures that go back into the Old Testament of often the lamb taken, its blood spilt, its blood put on the doorposts so the angel of the Lord would fly over and the life would be saved. Father, we thank you this morning. This blood was shed for us once for all so we never face the angel of God's judgment but we only experience blessed hope in the presence of, with God for eternity. We are amazed as your people this morning by your love set upon us. Lord, as we share in this meal, may we sense afresh that we are on holy ground. And in this place, we know forgiveness. We know a wealth of relationship with a heavenly Father that was only brought about by the Son who gave himself to death when heaven was silent. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you. Well, friends, the elders will and others will pass around the bread and wine. Please hold on to both. And then when we've all been served, we will eat and drink together as a sign of our unity in the body of Christ. And we're going to have some music while we're reflecting. Thank you. Plunge beneath 
Well, friends, let's uh, take the bread first and remember Christ's body broken for us. And now let's drink together in remembrance of his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Feed on him in our hearts by faith. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We look forward to the day when he returns. Let's stand and sing together a hymn of praise to the Lord Jesus. Let's stand.
going to finish our time with some notices and then we will pray together. Uh, earlier in the service we heard about what was happening in terms of activities this Christmas. One of the things we also do as a church is we uh, have our Christmas offering to go to two of our mission partners, ministry partners, um, and this year the mission core team has designated that that offering will be divided between Hope for Children Latvia and Caring for Life. So this week we hope to have um, uh, live on the website uh, for the church, the capacity for you to be able to go ahead and do that. There will also be more information coming out on uh, the Christmas offering in the church email this week. Other thing for members, just please make plans to attend the annual general meeting to be held this Tuesday evening here in the hall. Uh, or is that going to be in the chapel? Where is that going to be held? Anybody know? <laughs> Chapel. Thank you, Ben. Sorry, I was looking for you and I couldn't spot you in the room. So we'll be actually in the chapel at the other end of the building again this Tuesday, 745 annual general meeting for all members. 
And then we continue our Bible overview tonight. We'll be wrapping it up next Sunday evening. So God's big picture. Tonight we'll be looking, we've been looking at the overall story of the Bible through the lens of God's kingdom. And tonight we're looking at how that kingdom has been proclaimed uh, throughout the world since the time of Jesus. And so we're going to be looking at that tonight, 6 o'clock. That will be right here in the hall. I promise we will be done by 7 o'clock for those of you who want to watch England uh, and the World Cup tonight. So... We will now turn to something more serious again in God's word as we pray and conclude our time together. Let's pray. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Father, as we come to you at the end of this service, we thank you for the time we've had in singing and in being able to sit under the ministry of your word and to observe the Lord's table together. And all these things, Lord, as we think of these verses and the truth of your word, perhaps many of us would confess this morning that we are weary or losing heart. The pressures of life, of dealing with friends and family members perhaps who have failing health, Challenges in raising children, financial pressures, and just wondering where you are in the midst of it all. Thank you, Lord, that we have been encouraged and reminded this morning that you're a father who tests our faith and proves it because you love us. And you want us to fix our eyes on Jesus and draw near to him to deeper levels of faith, that our, fight, our faith might come forth like gold. So, Lord, in light of all we've done this morning, would you help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith? Would you help us not to grow weary and lose heart? And would you help us to run with perseverance the race that you've marked out for us, that we might live for your honor and for your glory? Thank you, Lord, for giving us this time together this morning. And we pray that as we have been blessed, more importantly, that you will have been pleased with the worship your children, your people have brought you this day. For we offer it to you in the mighty and wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.